Hello and welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne, today's western Germany, that is in the heart of Europe and which is over 2,000 years old. But before it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has had endured a colorful and rich past. It can therefore be seen as a kind of microcosm of European history. Here you can listen to the city grow, chronologically from the Romans up until our present time. In the last episode, we talked about how the dynasty change in the East Frankish Empire happened and how Cologne was part of East Francia again after it had been parts with early medieval France. The Carolingian era of this city is now over. Now the next one comes. And how this will be? Well, how better to start an episode than with one of the so many sagas about Cologne? Let's just start with one. King Henry I of the East Frankish Empire and Duke of Saxony had already died some years ago. Since the year 936, his son, king and later even emperor, Otto I ruled. Otto I had a lot of turmoil at home as far as governing was concerned, to say the least. Therefore, he sent his younger brother named Bruno on a diplomatic trip to neighboring France, the former Empire of West Francia. Both kingdoms, Otto's empire in the east and France in the west, were still connected by many things. Until some time ago, they had existed as one coherent political entity, but now east and west were increasingly going their separate ways. Diplomacy was not to be neglected, so that no misunderstandings would arise between those two. So it happened that Bruno, not only brother of the king, but also Archbishop of Cologne, traveled to Paris. Arrived in the metropolis on the Seine, the reception for Bruno and his delegation was unfortunately not as you would wish as diplomatic guests. The local people were unfriendly to the visitors from the east. The accommodation did not really impress a high-ranking state guest. But be it as it may, Bruno thought, grin and bear it. The next day it had actually been arranged that Bruno could celebrate a service in a church in Paris for himself and his travel group. Even good Christians should not miss that church service on trips abroad. But when Bruno entered the church, another service with priests was already in full swing. When Bruno also went to the altar to at least participate in the rest of the service, he was blocked. Quite the diplomat, Bruno did not let it come to an argument and left, but when leaving the church let it be known that all high-ranking citizens of the city would be invited to his banquet in the evening. Even the prospect of a delicious and above all free meal did not soften the hearts of the Parisian nobles. They ordered that no firewood was to be sold to the archbishop and all his servants. So the planned feast would probably fail. Bruno's diplomatic mission would have failed completely as well. But Bruno was a cunning fella. Instead of firewood, the archbishop's servants simply bought other things, things that could easily be set on fire and burned, like nuts and wooden dishes above all. And so the high-ranking citizens of Paris were astonished to see the best and most importantly cooked food on the tables when they arrived at the banquet in the hall. 
While everyone was eating with relish at the archbishop's expense, Bruno recited his disappointment at the lack of hospitality and in some cases even experienced dislike for him and demanded an apology. The assembled French guests, who had just feasted at his expense, however, had only mockery and scorn for their host. Then is now, by the way, a bad habit. Bruno then apparently let it go. Only when the guests left his feast did he tell them, Next year I will come again. Then no one will prevent me from celebrating a service here, nor will they make it difficult for me to organize such a large feast, which would even surpass this one here today. But again, the guests just laughed at it and left. What a nutcase this Archbishop of Cologne was, they thought. Well, a year later, Bruno stood before Paris again, with a mighty army. His soldiers entered the city, which they attacked by storm, destroying the houses of those who had wronged Bruno a year earlier. Now, no one stopped him from finally being able to hold his service in the same church as the year before. And with the captured treasures of the rich citizens of Paris who had offended him, Bruno and his army treated themselves to a feast that, after their imminent departure from the city, there was no firewood to be found afterwards. That was the legend of Archbishop Bruno of Cologne and his journey to Paris. Or better said, two journeys. I hope I do not have to repeat this, that this is a legend. On the contrary, the real Bruno of Cologne actually had a very good relationship with France. But we will come to that later. The legend was probably meant to show posterity what a smooth ruler this Bruno, Archbishop of Cologne, was. So we come to the real historically documented Bruno. His work is closely connected with his older brother, Otto I, king and later emperor of the East Frankish or then Holy Roman Empire. With Bruno, the development of the Archbishops of Cologne as the spiritual and secular head of the city reaches its first climax. From here on in the year 953, there was no longer any doubt as to who was the supreme ruler in the city on the Rhine. This almost all-encompassing rule of the Cologne Archbishops was to last for more than 300 years, until it became too much for the people of Cologne. But we will get to that sometime. All this becoming Archbishop of Cologne, but also the head of the city of Cologne, Bruno owed to his brother Otto, the Saxon king of the East Frankish Empire and later Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. One might quickly think, what a display of nepotism. Yes, that's true, but Otto can't actually be accused of this practice. Not that he didn't try it at first, he really did. But he was really unlucky with his family. Well, before you are afraid that I'll drift off into imperial German history again, I'll abbreviate absolutely radically here, because Otto I's life is worth of five seasons like Game of Thrones, believe me. Otto initially failed to administer the empire on a friendly basis when he became king in 936, as his father Henry had once done before. Otto had to fight several rebellions of the dukes in his 
realm in the first years of his reign between 936 and 941. After the suppression of the rebellions, he therefore first awarded important positions of power at court but also in the duchies to his relatives and his clan. But this too was a complete failure. The fact that perhaps his son-in-law and then Duke of Lorraine, Conrad the Red, rebelled. Okay, son-in-laws can be difficult, we all know that one guy. Also that Otto's younger brother Henry, the same name as his father, whom Otto had previously made Duke of Bavaria after Henry had previously also failed at the post as Duke of Lorraine, had conspired against him. Okay. He was probably angry that he had not become king instead of Otto, because the rule that the oldest son became the single heir, called beautifully primogen pre again primogeniture. What a nice word, and I love that term in Crusader Kings 3, by the way, if you know that computer game. Well, the primogeniture was not the case yet. Remember, it had been the case that the heritage was always divided equally as it had been under the Carolingians, I mean equally among the sons you had. Only Henry I had broken with that century-old tradition just a generation before. So I can quite understand that Henry's son, also named Henry, was mad at his older brother Otto. But also that guy named Eberhard, I hope you remember him from last episode, Duke of Franconia, who had been the most important support of the empire for Otto's father Henry I, betrayed Otto as well. But not only that, even Otto's, really, listen to that, even Otto's eldest son, Leodolf, allied himself with the enemies of his own daddy. How could this be? Why had so many rebelled against Otto? And why did this promote Bruno's career as later Archbishop of Cologne? Well, Otto did not see himself as a mere primus inter pares, first among equals, as his father King Henry had once done before. Otto had made a clear statement with his coronation in Charles the Great's Palatine Chapel in Aachen in 936. He was totally clothed in old Frankish imperial oh, clothes, and made a clear statement with his coronation that he was no Duke of Saxony getting crowned on the throne. No, he was Charles the Great, update 2.0 sitting. The Dukes of Swabia, Bavaria, Franconia and Lorraine had actually spent the last few decades getting used to the fact that their autonomy within the empire would become even larger and larger every generation coming. As a next step, the dukes had actually hoped to finally be able to inherit their ducal titles within their family, and not that, as it was common until now, a duchy was reassigned by the king after death. A runaway duke of things named Otto, who saw himself as Charles the Great, update 2.0, and wanted to strengthen the central power of the kingdom again, that was not exactly what they had, the dukes had hoped for. But Otto I, or also known as Otto the Great, would certainly not have received this yet glorious epithet if he had failed. He defeated not only the rivals in his empire, but also his stubborn family members. Don't worry, he didn't kill his son or his brother-in-law, because after all, Otto was not a Merovingian. Well, 
Duke Eberhard of Franconia could not say the same for himself because he died in a battle against Otto's allies. Otto was also able to celebrate success in foreign policy. The king and later emperor of the Holy Roman Empire defeated the Hungarians, you know, that people that raided Central Europe for many decades now. He defeated them in the famous Battle of Lechfeld near Augsburg in 955, decisively and permanently for all time banned further Hungarian invasions. A few years prior, in 951, Otto regained control of Upper and Central Italy, and in 962, Otto was crowned as Roman Emperor by the Pope in Rome, which established a close relationship between the Holy Roman Empire and the papacy until the early 19th century. Zack Boom! I can do it after all! Did you see that? Imperial German history presented briefly and crisply summarized. Because the life of Otto I, as well as that of Bruno, as said it before, could actually get its own TV series. And hey, if there's somebody listening who has a lot of money, let's do it. Anyone who has now listened a bit to my jumble of numbers and years, coronation as East Frankish king in 936, victory over the Hungarians in 955, and coronation as emperor in Rome in 962, notices one thing clearly. Otto I ruled for a very long time as king and later emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, for 37 years. That was an enormously long time. Not only was it special for the low life expectancy of the Middle Ages, also when you saw the conflicts and challenges Otto faced, it was truly remarkable. How often had he escaped death in battles or plots only by apparent luck or perhaps divine providence? Therefore the epithet, the great, if he certainly received it only through later historians, certainly applies to Otto measured by the standards of his time which was expected of a ruler. I would like to come still on the aspect of the title Roman Emperor in the medieval times, but I think that is out of place here for the time being, because actually the primary question for us is, what does this have to do with Bruno or with Cologne? In the history of the city of Cologne, important rulers had often had a local best body who helped them here on the Rhine. Emperor Augustus had Agrippa, Charles the Great had Archbishop Hildebold, and Otto also had a best body, his younger brother Bruno. And that is actually surprising, because after all, Otto's family had not exactly been a great help, to put it mildly. Q. rebellious son Leodolf and rebellious brother Henry. Bruno, however, was the absolute exception. No matter how serious the situation ever was, and believe me, Otto's rule was often on a knife's edge, Bruno never left any doubt as to whom his loyalty belonged. So let's move on to Bruno's vita. Bruno was born in the year 925 as the son of King Henry, Duke of the Saxons and East Frankish King, whom we had highlighted in the last episode. Thus he was of course the younger brother of Otto I. With little prospect of the throne, young Bruno, just five years old, 
is placed in the care of Bishop Balderich of Utrecht in 930. That he was sent there of all places should not be surprising. Only a few years earlier, Lorraine, together with Cologne, had been reacquired by Otto's and Bruno's father, Henry. The bishopric of Utrecht was part of the Cologne church province and thus part of Lorraine. In this way, the Saxon dynasty probably wanted to deepen the relations between the royal court and the Lorraine nobles. In Utrecht, a city in what is now the Netherlands, Bruno was trained for high clerical work. Of course not without ulterior motives. Bruno was not to become merely a humble and simple priest in a village. No, here Bruno learned everything. Reading, writing, Latin, poetry and how to read ancient writings. Already under Charles the Great before, you may remember, high clergymen were active as imperial court members. Our first archbishop, Hildebold, as head of the court chancellery of Charles the Great, is of course a good example. And then imagine this. Bruno, at only 15 years of age, is appointed imperial chancellor in 940 by his now royal brother Otto, who is almost twice his age. Bruno was now the head of the court chancellery. I don't know what you did with 15, but... I was still a normal student, finding out what MySpace is, I believe. Well, of course this says a lot. First, Otto must have trusted his much younger brother enormously, because in the year 940, all his rebellions were still going on, and his uh, family mutinying, and you know. Second, Bruno must have been considered extremely competent already at that time. Third, well... Who was left after all the rebellions and uprisings against Otto I among the dukes and the rest of the family who could have done the job? At Otto's side, Bruno served for the next 13 years, always loyal, but also above all, smart, imaginative and efficient. In all conflicts that came up, and these were really not a few even less dangerous ones, without Bruno, Otto would hardly have survived. Otto the Great would only have been an Otto. I just noticed this joke only makes sense in German. Well, let's continue. In addition, despite his origins, Bruno was known for his modest way of life. At least that is what the sources say. At the royal court, Bruno had the best conditions to network with all the powerful in the empire to exchange ideas with the most important scholars of the time in Europe and, of course, to understand the game of power. He also learned Greek from another bishop. In some episodes later, we will learn why this is useful. Bruno was considered a real bookworm. He always had a box full of books taken with him. Considering how valuable and also rare books were at that time, this is extremely remarkable. And so King Otto let his younger brother Bruno participate in a new system of rule which he had actually designed precisely because he could not rely on many secular rulers such as dukes, counts and also his own family. Think about it. Who could be left, a family as well as secular nobles, were no longer reliable in Otto's eyes? That's right, the church with its bishops and priests. This new system is affectionately called 
Reichskirchensystem in German or Imperial Church System or Imperial Church Policy in historical research. But the term is not entirely uncontroversial among historians nowadays. According to the critics, neither would this system have been accurately described in historical sources, nor would this system, if it existed at all, have been as pronounced in this period of the 10th century as it was in the 11th century. Well, historiography is great, isn't it? So I would like to choose a middle course here. Obviously, there was no clearly recognizable and sophisticated program or system or manifesto behind it. But it cannot be denied how the empire and the church under the dynasty of Otto I and his heirs intensified their cooperation enormously as never before. But first, let's go to the term itself. What is behind the imperial church system? Well, to put it quite simply, abbots of monasteries, bishops in their bishoprics, archbishops in their archbishoprics now officially became part of the king's exercise of power. In addition to their spiritual tasks, such as holding church services, managing bishoprics, and producing Bibles, they were giving secular tasks, duties, and rights, or as they are also called, and thieved. And thieved? Ah, all these rare English words that are so hard to pronounce. Well, it's coming from thief, you know. Just like the previous secular nobility, so with tax collection, jurisdiction, and also with the maintenance and provision of troops for the king. The Middle Ages did not know professional armies. Well, not yet. The king always had to rely on the dependent nobles under him, such as dukes, princes, counts, etc., to provide him, the king, with their own contingents of troops in the event of war, which they even usually also led. And exactly this task was now also taken over by ecclesiastical dignitaries. Many bishops now also ruled as princes of the empire in their given territories and they also went to war on horseback with their armor for the king or emperor and not infrequently for their own interests. As you have heard many times in this podcast, historical research has long suspected that Cologne bishops also exercised political temporal power in the city long before Bruno took office in the 10th century. But real evidence to definitely back this up or define it more precisely is lacking. But now, it became official in Cologne. After Otto was disappointed and betrayed by his own son and son-in-law as former Dukes of Lorraine, Otto now in the year 953 let his youngest brother take the lead on the great duchy in the west of his empire. Whereby this omits a few details. Bruno, on behalf of his king and brother Otto, personally went to war against Otto's disloyal son-in-law named Conrad the Red, the still reigning Duke of Lorraine at that time, and Bruno had taken then Lorraine from him. After achieving that, he made the nobles in Lorraine swear allegiance to his brother, the king, during an assembly in Aachen. A bishop wages war? Look at that. But that was totally normal at that time. The bishop's hat was often exchanged for a military helmet. 
Consider that the Duchy of Lorraine was once a kingdom in its own right just hundred years earlier, with rulers mostly named Lothar. That's why it got its name. It went down here in the middle of the 10th century from Friesland on the North Sea coast, in a broad stretch southward along the Rhine, Moselle and Meuse river, along with the old Roman cities of Cologne, Trier, Strasbourg to Basel, in what is now Switzerland. If the Duchy of Lorraine were revived today in our time, you would have created one of the richest or maybe the richest country in Europe, besides Monaco, with the Rhineland, the Benelux countries and parts of France and Switzerland. Whoever ruled successfully here truly had a powerful position. And Bruno was extremely smart and mastered this task of holding this great entity together with flying colors. Bruno thus became the most prominent example of Otto's so-called imperial church system or Reichkirchensystem. For Bruno became not only Duke of Lorraine in 953, but also the Archbishop of Cologne at the same time. Officially, of course, Bruno was elected Archbishop of Cologne by the electoral body of the Archbishopric. Who exactly this electoral body was and who was a member of it, as I told you in an earlier episode, we do not know as said for this time. Probably there were high clergymen, perhaps even some noblemen from the region who took part in the electoral assembly in Cologne. Furthermore, the talk here was of clergy and people, without saying exactly who that was at all. However, it is undisputed that the older brother Otto I did everything so that his younger brother got this bishop's chair in Cologne. In May of the year 953, Otto himself had been in Cologne and had probably arranged everything for his little brother. If you understand what I mean. Well, the Middle Ages were far from the concept of separation between church and state. Now Bruno was the duke and the archbishop in large parts of his dominion, since the Cologne church province also extended over many parts of the Duchy of Lorraine. With this concentration of secular as well as spiritual power, Bruno was in this position the second most powerful man in the entire Holy Roman Empire or East Frankish Empire. You know there is this shift to the Holy Roman Empire right now happening directly behind his royal brother Otto. For Cologne, this meant that Bruno was now their supreme city ruler in all matters of everyday life, whether in church, on Sundays, or in tax payments. The historian Rutger therefore called Bruno an Archidux, Latin for Archduke, in his specially prepared biography of Bruno. A mixed word of both titles Archbishop of Cologne and Duke of Lorraine. With Rutger, we have a great historical source about Bruno. Not only was Rutger alive during Bruno's lifetime, he had also been personally acquainted with Bruno. Of course, the question here is how truthfully Rutger, who published the biography only two years after Bruno's death, reported here. For example, he judged Bruno's investiture in 953 as the new archbishop as Quote, 
He is a mature man in spite of his youth and humble and mild in spite of his supreme nobility. End quote. But hey, without Rudger, we would know almost nothing about Bruno's life. So we should be glad for the Benedictine monk Rudger from the monastery of St. Pantaleon. Wait a minute, the church of St. Pantaleon is a monastery? Oops, minor spoiler to the next episode. And despite this accumulation of power, Bruno never once thought of becoming dangerous or disloyal to his brother. On the contrary, it was above all Bruno who, as Viceroy of the East Frankish Empire slash Holy Roman Empire, and as a region of it, represented his brother whenever King Otto, later Emperor Otto, was on long war campaigns against the pagan Slavs in the East or in Italy. The longest period when Bruno served as Viceroy and Regent of the Empire was between 961 and 965, when Otto was on a campaign in Italy for four years and, in addition to some conquests there, had the imperial dignity imposed on him by the Pope in Rome. Why did Otto do this? Why did he rely on clergymen like Bruno for the administration of his empire? Well, as I said, Otto had almost no other choice to secure his rule this way. The nobility and his own family had conspired against the royal central power, that is, against himself, several times. Who else could he have relied on, as I said? Bruno was not an isolated case. Bruno was more like the prototype of Otto's new system of rule, the Reichskirchensystem, the imperial church system. Many other bishops and abbots received land, privileges, and rights by the king. And where did Otto get the power to do this? Well, that's the good thing about putting down revolts and especially winning them. You have some new lands and power to distribute. You must understand, neither in antiquity, and certainly not in the Middle Ages, could a single person impose the entire political will on his own at any place at any time. Centralized nation-states with civil service, courts and police? That simply did not exist. The king was de facto all of these in one. But he could not handle this enormous responsibility alone. How could he? Only at the place where the king stayed at present in a small radius of maybe two-day ride with a horse, he exercised direct power. In the rest of the empire, however, anarchy would have prevailed if he had not done something about it. So a king was dependent on having local and regional rulers who decided on the spot in his name while he was absent for most of the time. Whether the king wanted to or not, if it had been possible, Otto would certainly have ruled Swabia, Lorraine, Bavaria and so on directly, and northern Italy as well. But even the smartest and hardest working ruler of that time would not have been able to do that with the given means. Not even a Charles the Great. From Bavaria to Friesland, one did not come so simply as today in one day over the Autobahn with 130 kilometers an hour. Of course, taking care of the church with secular tasks as well was not without consequences in the long run. If priests, abbots and even bishops had to do worldly tasks, where was the time left for the spiritual duties? This would later open the door to corruption, immorality, 
and the actually illegal buying and selling of spiritual offices, since these were now accompanied by secular privileges, money and power. And Cologne was to become a special example of how much it was increasingly getting on the common people's nerves here, pretty soon. But in Otto's and Bruno's time, the advantages of this imperial church system still predominated. One of these advantages was that bishops or abbots could not bequeath any office or dignity to their descendants, because they were priests. Meanwhile, celibacy had become widely accepted. Whoever became a bishop renounced marriage and children and knew that he had nothing to inherit. For example, if a bishop already had children before he was ordained priest, they were no longer entitled to inherit from him. In case of Bruno, it was expected early on that he never got married since he pursued a career as a priest since early childhood. And after all, how could a bishopric be inherited? That was already illogical from a theological point of view. Now it was one thing for Bruno to be appointed Duke of Lorraine. As a native of Saxony, he thus entered as a new ruler, a region which had once together with the local nobility quite self-confidently alternated between the West Frankish Empire and the East Frankish Empire and had even been independent for some, quite some time. And especially with Bruno's predecessors as Dukes of Lorraine had rebelled against Otto. But Bruno was, and I know a historian is not supposed to praise historical figures, a kind of administrative and military Wunderkind. Such a nice German word that luckily has found its way into the English language next to Kindergarten, Doppelgänger and Zeitgeist. But I digress. Bruno actually managed to unite the once fractious Lorraine nobles behind him. Skillfully, Bruno carried out his ruling policy in such a way that his big brother, King Otto himself, was soon to copy this practice. As Duke, Archbishop Bruno seized the opportunity that presented itself and assigned vacant bishoprics due to the death of the title holders, which were also outside the Cologne Church province, with his loyal supporters. All clergymen appointed there had worked with him in the apprenticeship, so to speak. This is what happened in the bishoprics of Metz, Toul, Verdun, which were actually under the archbishopric of Trier and not of Cologne. The king and later Emperor Otto copied this practice, just as Bruno raised his clerical political offspring from his Cologne court, Otto did the same with his people from his court chapel. And if that were not enough, Bruno extended his theory of power beyond the borders of his duchy into neighboring France, the former West Frankish Empire. But hey, let's call it just France from now on, okay? West Frankish Empire, West Francia is now France. There in France, the royal power was quasi-divided between the Carolingians still ruling there and the so-called Capetians. At the time, neither dynasty could rule without the other. This sets the stage for Bruno, because Bruno was related by marriage to both dynasties and was thus as a kind of intermediary between the two. In this way, he became the guardian of the later French king Hugo Capet, 
the reason why the dynasty was called Capetians, in the year 956, whose mother was Bruno's sister Hartwig. You see, France and the East Frankish slash Holy Roman Empire still were connected in some kinds of ways. But let's best leave the further explanations about dynastic connections because such things have always puzzled me. But even though this is off topic, the dynasty of the Capetians are still around. They changed the dynasty name several times and split up and some of them lost a few of their heads in France during the French Revolution, but up until 1848, all French kings were descendants of this Hugo Capet that was taken care of by Bruno. Today, the king of Spain also has a direct line back to the 10th century to Hugo Capet. But now back to the topic. The direct proximity to France in the west of Bruno's domain made it all too logical that Bruno often traveled there to conduct diplomacy on behalf of his royal brother. Not only we as people of the 21st century find it strange that an archbishop also went to wars or diplomatic trips personally as also being a duke. Not a few contemporary witnesses criticized this development. But since, according to the historical sources, Bruno, despite all his secular duties as a duke, exercised his episcopal office with bravura, just as a pious man. So the criticism never became threatening for him. As a high clergyman, Bruno promoted spiritual education. The Archbishop of Cologne especially promoted monastic schools, the educational institutions of the early Middle Ages. Universities are indeed a medieval invention, but these do not appear until much later. In addition to theology, these monastic schools also taught Latin and also the copying and thus preservation of ancient texts. Bruno's successful administration in Cologne was considered exemplary and shaped the entire empire in its development. His bishopric, his archbishopric in Cologne, made this city the intellectual center of the empire at that time. Many renowned later bishops studied here. It was from here that those high clergymen came that Bruno but also Otto preferred to elevate to new posts in the most diverse offices of the empire. As Archbishop of Cologne and Duke of Lorraine, Bruno had received additional quasi-royal rights in his domain from his brother, King and later Emperor Otto I. Bruno was allowed to better fortify and expand cities and towns under his own direction. He could also freely dispose of market rights and the right to mint coins and did not have to first obtain permission from the king. If that were not enough, Bruno could levy and retain his own taxes in his domain. With Cologne as Bruno's seat of power, the city itself became the most important city not only of the Duchy of the Rhine, but of the entire Holy Roman Empire. We should take a look at what exactly Bruno's episcopate, that is the time of his tenure as Archbishop of Cologne, had for the direct impact on the city and on the cityscape. For Bruno did something during his tenure that would help Cologne fully take off in the Middle Ages and the early modern period to be Germany's biggest city. But, whew, 
Let's take a breather on that for now and get to it another time. We will come back to Bruno. You see, there is still so much to talk about him. Above all, what decisive influence he has had on the city to this day. For all that has been said here was rather focused on Bruno's work as a prince of the empire and duke of Lorraine. But I found the person of Bruno so interesting that I made this episode. It sets the stage for understanding many developments in the city during his year as archbishop. But we will not devote ourselves to that next time. Because I have something else in mind for the next episode. Today's historians don't really like epoch boundaries anymore. No epoch ends abruptly. But with the takeover of kingship of the Saxons in the East Frankish Empire, something is formed in the long term. The shadow of Charles the Great was still present after almost 200 years here, yes, but something new was emerging here. As much as the East Frankish dukes quarreled among themselves or directly with the king, no one actually questioned the empire itself with a king at its head. The dukes only had something personally against Otto and his style of rule, but not against the political formation itself that we would call the Holy Roman Empire or the office of the king-slash-emperor in itself. And if the nobles in Saxony, Lorraine, Franconia, Bavaria and Swabia, but also in northern Italy and Bohemia, despite all the cultural differences and quarrels, appeared united to the outside world as for example against the Hungarians or other outsiders, then in the medium term this provided a kind of identity-forming development towards the medieval entity that was to exist as the Holy Roman Empire until the early modern period, until Napoleon. Therefore, sorry for the long derivation, I had to record this several times without stumbling over my own words. But we draw a line here at this point. The Frankish time of Cologne is over. It passed comparatively seamlessly into the reign of the Saxon Eudolfings dynasty or also better known as Ottonians. I say this now because it is more or less true. No Carolingian, not even a Frank, reigns any longer on the royal seat of the empire to which Cologne belongs. And almost at the same time, the Archbishop of Cologne now also finally takes over the political and secular power of the city. From now on, no Frankish count rules the city anymore. So, where? If not here is an epoch section meaningful for Cologne. Therefore, next time you can look forward to a review of Cologne in Frankish time. A review of good 500 years from the years 450 to approximately 950. Here we can once again illuminate protracted developments that affected Cologne. Such long-term developments are usually difficult to present if... This podcast follows a largely narrow chronological scheme. And of course, we will not only look backwards at what was, we will also see what will come. So I'm looking forward to when we take a 
retrospective look at Frankish Cologne in the next installment. So let's get to the support your favorite podcast about Cologne part. Oh, that's me actually, because I also like another Cologne podcast pretty much, which is called Podclav. But this podcast is totally in Cologne German, and if you don't speak German or can only hardly speak German, this podcast is not for you. But this is another favorite podcast of mine that I have about Cologne. So, but again. So let's get to the support your favorite podcast about Cologne's history part. Subscribe and rate this channel where possible so others can enjoy my voice and the history of this city. You can subscribe everywhere where you listen to your podcast. And you can rate my show on Apple Podcasts and more recently on Spotify. Hey, please do that. Five stars only, please. Follow me on social media like Instagram, Facebook, Twitter or TikTok. There you can find me as History of Cologne or History of Cologne Podcast. On my homepage, I always have pictures and background information for every single episode, this one as well, hey. including an interactive city map where you can see where places and buildings etc. can be found in today's cityscape of Cologne. Link to it in the show notes or thehistoryofcologne.com. And in my link tree in the show notes, you can find other ways how you can support this podcast, my one-man show, it really is, my hobby in the evening and on the weekends. Have a look, I'd be glad. As always, thank you so much for listening. My annual bill for my homepage domain and podcast hosting costs just fluttered in my mailbox and oh, it really hit me. But then I quickly remembered that my Patreons are already co-financing a large portion of it for me, like 50-50. Thanks a lot for that, it really helps in those times. And also thanks to Peter as the newest member of my Patreons. Thank you very much, Dankeschön. So feel free to tune in again next time. Recommend me to others, that's the most important part, and auf Wiedersehen.